All right, well, with that, uh, let me invite you now to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. We're working our way through the book of Acts, and we are presently in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, which is just the last verse of chapter 12, and then uh, the first um, 12 verses of um, the book of, or chapter 13. And so let's stand together and let's read this passage, and we will see what the Lord has for us today. Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Lord, we come to you now asking for your help. We see, Lord, that we are people who who need, Lord, your help. So what we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And Lord, as your Holy Spirit works through this passage, Lord, allow me simply to be your mouthpiece. Accomplish your purposes in conforming us, Lord, to be like your son, Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, on a church level, allow us to be conformed to the paradigm, Lord, that you want for us as a church. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Help, Lord, this passage to to cause us to to think and to talk and to, to, to evaluate, Lord, what we're doing and how we can do things even better for your glory. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the story for me begins in the year 2000, where I began a relationship with a coalition of churches in Detroit who were all working together in what was called the Antioch Initiative with Slavic Gospel Association. And that Antioch Initiative was a work uh, taking place in the country of Russia, and in particular um, in the Detroit 
coalition, we were working in a place called Kirov-Chepetsk, which is near the city of Kirov. Um, but there was a church there that we were working at. And the goal was to train uh, young men or even older men who had been called into ministry so that they could go out and serve the Lord as missionaries in that land. Well, that was true in Michigan, but also when I came to California, that Antioch initiative continued because I joined up with the Northern California Coalition. And uh, we also went to, to some places in Russia, in particular the, the city of Ufa. And so there were three places, really, that I had the privilege of going and being a part of this Antioch initiative. Grace Church in Kirochepetsk, which is about 14 hours um, out in the middle of nowhere by train from Moscow. Um, the Ark Church in Krasnodar, uh, which is down in the southern part of Russia, uh, near the Black Sea. And then the House of Prayer Church in Ufa, which was the, the region of Bashkortostan, just north of Kazakhstan and east of Tartarstan. If I've lost you, it's okay. Um, but just know it's out there kind of in the middle of the place that most of us, although there's a few of us here, know it very well. But it was a wonderful privilege to be a part of that. And each of those churches in those central cities or regional cities, as well as many others around Russia, were chosen to partner with SGA to establish Antioch churches. And the central church, uh, that Antioch church, is committed really to four objectives. One is training, in particular the training of men for ministry. Secondly, it's identifying of those people who have been trained, those who are qualified for ministry. Simply having the training doesn't mean that you're qualified. From the training, you find out whether these people are actually genuine, whether they're serious, or whether God is at work in them. Third, sending, sending men out and having strategy about what that was going to look like, and then ultimately supporting that those churches would support those pastors, those missionaries, as they went out to plant those churches. And friends, as we began our church, Gateway Bible Church, and we were discussing what are some, some core DNA or core values that would really flesh out the DNA of what we believe a church should be, there was a whole list of them, but we kind of began with the first one. We needed to have a robust gospel. We needed to make sure that we were giving place for, for proper expositional preaching. We needed to make sure that we were committed to, to a progressive sanctification, helping people grow to become more and more like Christ. But one thing was also very important to us, and that's that we would bleed missions. In other words, that missions wasn't just an afterthought that was tacked onto a church, that it was at the heart, at the center of what we were doing, that we were committed wholeheartedly to it, not just simply dabbling in it. Now, friends, let me remind you of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says to the disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so ultimately he's saying, go, or as you're going, do these things. So he says go, but in our text, what we find in this uh, is the church really sending out missionaries. And, and when we think about missions, you're either going or you're sending or you're being disobedient. Really three options, right? And our goal then is to be going and to be sending and doing all we can to help those who may not have seen the importance of missions jump on board because we're all called to be a part of this mission mission endeavor. 
And so to that end, we want to pay attention to this text because in it, this is what we find. The church's strategic missional advance of the gospel to the end of the earth. And if you remember, what we've gone through so far is, is God establishing his church or kind of the witness going out to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to into the Gentile territories. And there's been a, a, a shift that has been taking place. And what's happening now is there's some strategy going on. There's this missional approach. There's an advance taking place. Let's just take these words individually. It is strategic. In other words, it's a formal and deliberate move versus something that was informal and spontaneous. And what we've seen so far, for the most part, on a human level, has been very spontaneous and very informal. Now, it's also missional, meaning it's engaging people with the gospel. The apostles are going into places with specific purposes of proclaiming the gospel. They're not building community wells, although those are good. They're not looking to teach people how to live off the land, although there's a place for that. They're not superimposing foreign culture upon the people or making promises of prosperity wherever they go. No, the mission is still the same being Christ's witnesses, taking the gospel to these places. And then there's advance. The idea there is the spreading out from this base camp church in Antioch. This is the missional strategy that they are involved in. And friends, as we think about that and as we think about our text, I want us to say, is Gateway engaged in this church being strategic and missional and advancing the gospel to the end of the earth. Our, our text really can be divided into four sections, four uh, movements, we would say. There's a missionary call to begin with. There's a missionary commission that we'll see. There's a missionary confrontation. And then there's going to be a missionary conversion. And there's a lot for us to learn from these few verses, friends. So hang in there with me. And hopefully it's going to help kind of form in your mind what our purpose is as a church as we think about missions. First of all, a missionary call. And quite frankly, we're going to spend a good bit of time here because this is critical. We must begin by setting this passage in its context. So let's just look at some verses around. If you have your Bible handy, you're going to see some verses around our text. They're going to help kind of give some right context. Acts chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. Notice what it says there. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, what's significant about this part is that Barnabas goes and seeks out Saul and brings him now to this very important city and this church that has risen up there. And for a whole year, they are teaching in this church. Now, remember, Antioch was like the third largest city in the Mediterranean at that point in time. Rome being number one, Alexandria being number two, and then Antioch. While they are there, while the teaching is going on, there's a prophet that comes and he, he talks about a famine that's going to take place in Judea. And so the church takes up a collection and that collection is going to be taken to Rome to be used to help the brothers that are there. And the ones that are to take that are going to be Barnabas and Saul. We find that in chapter 11 and verse 30, right? 
Now, Acts chapter 12 and verses 1 through 24 is what we looked at last week is, is kind of an interlude where we see the death of James, we see the death of Herod, and we see the deliverance of Peter. And, and this marks the ends of Peter's ministry and ultimately prepares us for what is going to happen with Paul. And that what we want to see there is that ministry will be fruitful, but it will come with great suffering. And we certainly saw that last week. But now look at chapter 12 and verse 25, which is the beginning of our text. And note what it says. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. In other words, Acts 12.25 picks up where 11.20 or 11.30, left off. You with me there? So we're picking up. They're coming back from Jerusalem now, having dropped off these funds to help the church, and they're coming back to Antioch. That's the context that we have here. And so now we want to turn to this missionary call. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And in particular, the choosing of Barnabas and Saul. And what we're going to see here are four criteria for choosing missionaries. And friends, the missionary call in our text is essentially a God-given mantle or God-given responsibility to serve Christ as a proclaimer of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of my my favorite preachers who's who's been dead for a number of years now is Martin Lloyd-Jones. You may know the name. Uh, Here's what he said that I thought was just incredibly profound. He said, the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of our world also. Just think about that. What he's saying is the greatest thing that our world needs is a preacher who's willing to stand up and truthfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great Methodist preacher William Sangster noted, preaching is in the shadows, the world does not believe in it. Alistair Begg, you may know from the radio, he's the Scottish preacher who's in Ohio. And as he was reflecting on Sangster's words, he's evaluating it in his own context. And here's what he says, preaching is still in the shadows, but this time much of the church doesn't believe in it. The problem is, though, as I see it, I'll take it a little further. Preaching remains in the shadows, and now many of the preachers or missionaries do not believe in it. Well, if you're called to preach and you don't preach, then you're not much of a preacher. But this is what's happened in the church. Things have changed. There's been an abandoning of this gospel witness being primary. So what we have here then to begin with is the need for trained men. God had established Antioch as a ministry and theological hub an equipping and training center producing many growing and maturing disciples. We saw that earlier as we read in chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse 25, we're told that Barnabas and Saul, they, they, they taught, they team taught really for a year. And remember, it's been about 10 years since Pentecost. And it's been about eight years since Paul was converted and he had his encounter with Jesus in Arabia and came back and was all on fire and ultimately goes back to Tarsus. So this teaching in 1125 is not some simplistic entry-level kind of teaching, but the laying down of a robust theology. See, I, I wonder whether or not we understand that very early in the church, 
the theology of the church was actually still very strong. It's not like, well, it's not until after Acts that this theology kind of happened because you have Acts and then you have the epistles. Understand that the epistles are written when? In the context of the book of Acts. So can you imagine being in Antioch and sitting at the feet of the apostle Paul? when he's walking through all these wonderful doctrinal truths that we have recorded for us in the, in the epistles, the doctrine of salvation, that's a whole book of Romans, Christ in the Old Testament, justification by faith alone, what it means for Christians to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, what does it mean to be in Christ? All this stuff is happening. This is robust teaching. And this is incredibly important, friends, And now in Antioch, as many as were trained and taught in the word are are, are there, and God was raising up some of them to be prophets and teachers. Now, don't think of a prophet just as an Old Testament prophet. Think of a prophet as someone who's speaking for God, in particular in a in a one-time moment, like what I'm doing this morning. This is kind of a, a one-time moment. I'm I'm proclaiming God's truth from already revealed truth to the people. A teacher, however, is someone who is unpacking the word of God and the doctrine of the word of God over time. So there's a little bit more of a, of a, of a classroom kind of a mentality. We're building up the people over time, teaching them this body of doctrine, whereas the prophet is going and proclaiming and preaching in that particular moment. Now, Luke lists five men then from this vast array of others who are both prophets and teachers. Barnabas, so remember him? He's the wealthy, generous encourager of the church. Simon, who was also called Niger, possibly, some think, the same Simon of Cyrene that we find in the Gospels helping carry the cross for Jesus. The word Niger literally means dark complexion in Latin. So he was likely a a black African. Lucius of Cyrene, we really don't have much information on him at all, um, except that his name was very much a Roman kind of a name. This one, this next one is interesting, Menaean. He is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, literally one who ate at the table with him. And historians think that likely what he was was a foster brother of his. And likely he was a source for Luke in understanding what was going on in Herod's family and in Herod's mind. And then we have Saul, the former persecutor of the church. Now just think, friends, this is quite an array of people, isn't it? These are not all people from the same neck of the woods. These are different kinds of people. And this list should remind us that God calls his servants from all sorts of different countries and cultures and classes and ethnicities. So these are, first of all, trained men. Secondly, they're qualified men. These men were both trained and experienced, not novices. They are the best, not the last resort. They're the cream of the crop, not the leftovers. And as the church thinks about missions, one of the things that we need to make sure is true in our thinking is that those that we send out are the best and the trained workers for the field. Not simply to say we want to hold on to the best, but we want to liberate those people to go where they need to go. And this is true for the church, but it's also true for families and for parents in particular. 
I mean, you can be a godly parent who's working hard to raise your children in the fear of the Lord and, and training them what it means to walk with the Lord and to, and to serve the Lord. And then one day as your children are older, one of them comes to you and says, hey, mom, hey, dad, guess what? The Lord is calling me to be a missionary. And all of a sudden, the parents move from being faithful shepherds of their children and disciples of their children to becoming selfish parents who don't want their kids to go. And we can empathize with that because they're looking to see grandkids and all that kind of stuff. And yet, God calls people into ministry. And as the church, we cannot be selfish about that at all. No, son, don't go. Someone else can do it. There's lots of people who want to serve the Lord on the mission field. Think of all the the ways that God can use you here, in our town, near us. Right? I mean, who's gonna who's gonna watch your kids? Right? You can impact a generation of missionaries, but no, no, no. We got to be careful. We got to be loose with our grip, even on our children also on those who are part of our church. On the other hand, someone might unrealistically romanticize about serving on the mission field and imagine a rather fruitful impact. Well, I'm just going to go there and share the gospel and people are just going to start rolling in because I'm bold with the truth. and The harvest is is plenteous. I'm going to go there. I'm going to reap. But they're not necessarily thinking about theological training. They just want to go. Now, isn't it interesting that it is Saul and Barnabas that are chosen? I mean, these are the ones who were laboring in the church. I mean, why wouldn't they take someone else, someone's younger, someone that's a little bit more, uh, you know, green, so to speak? But that's not what happens. Friends, missions isn't to be taken lightly. It is a serious matter. But missions is not to be a last option or a last resort for people. I remember when I was in university, it's a Christian university, and um, I remember interacting with a number of guys um, who I would call them strange ducks, okay? Uh, there were guys who had strange mannerisms. They were socially awkward. They could often be critical or demeaning with their words, and they were all missions majors. And... and out of my curiosity, I would sit down and talk with them because I was just genuine. I wanted to know what was happening with them. I would say, so how did you choose to be a missions major? And they were, you know, the responses were something like this. Well, I thought about being a school teacher, but the classes were hard, and my teachers thought that maybe I had gifts in other areas. So I thought about being an accountant, but I really didn't want to sit behind the desk the rest of my life. Then I considered law, but that would be too much reading for me. And then I thought, why not become a pastor? I can certainly do that. So I became a Bible major, but I struggled in pulpit speech. And my professors suggested that I might have gifts in other areas. So I thought, anyone can be a missionary. I can just become a missionary, go to a country somewhere, and serve the Lord. And you see that the basic idea, the basic mentality that was there present in that context was if you don't have skills and gifts in anything else, you can always be a missionary. Friends, that is not what Scripture says. That is not the tone of what's happening here. 
That attitude is so far removed from what we read here in Scripture. The Lord takes the best, the cream of the crop, the ones who are trained, the ones who are gifted to serve them in those, those contexts. Then we have chosen men, number three. Notice verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit set, said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. How does God call men into a preaching ministry? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us a little bit here. And we can't cover this exhaustively, but let me kind of give you some nuggets. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. So there's something within that individual that's happening, that they're, they're identifying something within themselves, that this is, this is an area of ministry that I feel that like, the Lord is setting me apart for. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So what he's saying to Timothy here is this, that yes, you may have had that desire, but that desire was affirmed by me. And ultimately, in a bigger picture, that the desire is affirmed by the church. So we're told that the Holy Spirit sets Barnabas and Saul apart But in verse 3, we're told that the church prayed and laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's a wonderful picture, friends, of the Holy Spirit's work through the church. Chosen by the Holy Spirit, affirmed by the church. And that's why anytime someone feels that they're called into ministry, to do that out of the context of the church is really unhealthy. Because you need both. You need the accountability. You need the strength and the support of the church to identify your gifts. Now, why Barnabas and Saul? On a human level, we may question the wisdom of it. Please, please don't take Barnabas. Can you imagine if he was one of our members? Um, You know, of all the people, Lord, that you could take, why Barnabas? He's such a good guy. I mean, first of all, he's got money. And when we have needs, he's quick to write a check. But he's so gracious. He's such an encourager. I mean, every time we go to home group, we come away saying, man, Barnabas is such an encouragement. Lord, you don't want to take Barnabas. Or, Lord, why are you taking Saul? He's a natural evangelist. We need him here. He is a teacher. He's going to write a whole bunch of books, and we want them to be from here. But it is the Holy Spirit that has spoken. He knows what is best. And as I look back on the people God has allowed to come through our little church, I'm thankful for the shoulder-to-shoulder ministry we've had with so many that God has called away from us. Let me just highlight four names, just kind of, for some of you, you'll know. But obviously, you know, J.D. and Thea Bautista, whom God called to serve him in Vienna, Austria, whom we loved, who served faithfully, um, and it was bittersweet to say goodbye. I mean, there was pain, but there needs to be a release in ministry for what God is doing. Uh, Matt and Allie Dodson, uh, he, wasn't, he was you know, an elder here, and, and, and Allie was very involved in women's ministry, and Matt was wise and gifted in so many different ways, and, and yet God calls them to Houston, and as they get to Houston, they're now... The world has opened up for them for ministry, and it's just just a wonderful, wonderful thing. 
um, the Kim family, who are now serving the Lord in the mission field. Uh, you know, he was uh, one of the guys that was helping in the pulpit ministry. He came on mission trips and stuff like that. And, 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 uh, um, and we just, again, so hard to say goodbye, but we, we had to release them. The, the Kiyagiris, who were here for a good season, and then we're like, you know, we want to go help start a church in Oakland, and so we're going to do that. And, and yet at the same time stayed very connected with many of us here. It's kind of a, an unusual but wonderful relationship. They're now back in Kenya. But the point is this, that God takes good people out of good churches so that his gospel ministry can continue where he wants it. We can't just hoard people for ourselves. And the reality is when God takes people who are loved and gifted and removes them on, what happens? There are people back in the wings who've been trained, who are being trained, who are going to step in and start developing those gifts and somehow move in the process of, of, of becoming equipped for the ministry. Whether it be men, in particular for the ministry of preaching, or women who are using their gifts to help support and encourage the church. So when a church sends out missionaries, it should be bittersweet. It shouldn't be like, yeah, we're happy to see you go. <laughs> no, these should be the ones that we love and we know are gifted. Not the strange ducks that really shouldn't be going there at all. Now, who knows, friends, in the next 10 years that we may have the privilege of sending out four or five more families, families that are sitting right here. Because God is doing a work in you to say, I want you to answer the call to ministry, whether that's pastoral ministry or that's being a missionary somewhere. That would be a wonderful thing. They're also sent out men. They're chosen, qualified, trained, but they're sent out men. Then after fasting, verse 3, and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The earthly mission is an outgrowth of the heavenly mission. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit, and the church, guided by the Spirit, sends out missionaries. So let's put all this together. These trained and qualified men are chosen and sent out by the Holy Spirit through the affirmation and confirmation of the church to do the work for which Christ has called them. So please notice the correlation now between how the, the Holy Spirit works through the church to send missionaries out to the end of the earth. And you can see the graphic that I put up there. You have this missionary in the, in the center of this graphic who has been converted, who has been trained, who's qualified, who's chosen, and who's sent. And on the, the top line representing the divine activity, the Holy Spirit now is at work through all of these stages, calling this person into ministry. But then on the bottom one, you have the church being represented there that are coming along and affirming what the Holy Spirit is doing all along the way. I mean, yes, God is doing it, but God is also allowing the church then to be the hands and the feet and the family and the fellowship and the community that is watching and that is training and that is affirming these people. This is the picture. This is how it works, friends. It was only a year after my conversion that I began to sense the Lord's call into ministry on my life. A hunger for God's word was rising up in me. A desire to help others with God's word was present. And lots of discussions with friends and pastors and parents were taking place. And over time, a desire to serve the Lord in pastoral ministry grew. 
And my father, he was, he was wise. At this point in time, man, his wisdom was so, I'm going to look back and I just think I'm so thankful for it. He wouldn't let me go to the Christian university to be a Bible major for fear that I was simply pursuing something that was popular. Or simply because I was pursuing ministry that to really to be affirmed by others, like, oh, that's great, we're glad to hear that, you know, when it really wasn't a call. Or that I was being influenced by others to choose that path. And so it was between my freshman and sophomore year that I unloaded my heart before my father, telling him how God was at work in my heart and, and my, my certainty that the Lord was calling me into ministry. And he gave me some, some challenging words. And words that still ring true today. He said, Rod, do you know what you're getting into? He said, this is no small responsibility. You will be serving as a representative of the Lord. And he looked at me and he says, many people will love you and stand with you. He says, some people will hate you and oppose you. And he wasn't talking about people outside the church. And then he says, others will turn on you, people that you thought were your friends. He says, serving the Lord will mean that you will have a target on your back. Are you willing to face those hardships? And you know what? His words have rung true. And I needed to hear that then because this is not some fancy. This is a call that I must do because this is what God is doing. Now, that's my example. God raises up people in different ways, but, but listen, the call to ministry is a serious call. It's not something we play around with. Missionary call. Secondly, a missionary commission. We'll start moving a little faster here. A missionary commission, verses 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. There's two strategies for ministry that we see in these verses that are really helpful for us to consider. First of all, a team strategy. God does not intend for a lone ranger strategy for missions. Jesus sent out the disciples, how many? In twos. The apostles will see went out as teams, and we have that listed here. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who was from Crete himself. Paul, the evangelist and theologian. And then we have John Mark, who was the assistant. And they all had their kind of roles and functions to play. In the church, there is to be a plurality of elders who look out for one another when they're caring for God's flock. You know, we were driving down to the Shepherds Conference last week, and I was thinking about this. Um, you know, I barreled ahead and I was driving one of the vehicles. We had two vehicles and I stuck it out and I drove down there no problem. On the way back, um, the person who was driving the other car was having some difficulty and they shifted and someone else took up, took up some, some driving responsibilities. You know, we might say we can barrel through, we can do it. But boy, it's so wonderful to have a team where you can say, you know what, can we, can we just switch places here for a bit so I can rest and I can recover? You see, God never intended for the lone ranger to go out there and to serve him by himself. And if you have a lone ranger mentality, whether that be in pastoral ministry or even church ministry, you will ultimately burn out and you will be discouraged and you will possibly have resentment. Remember, even the lone ranger had Tonto 
And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, ask someone with my color hair and they'll be able to help you. A team strategy. Secondly, there's a ministry strategy. And we're just going to highlight some things here. First of all, um, they went to a central a centrally located city. In other words, this, these are major cities in particular, on Crete. First of all, Salamis, they went there. If you notice on the map, it's on the eastern side. And then they went to Paphos, which is on the western side, which is actually where the next encounter is going to take place. So the strategy, first of all, was go to a place and find that central city. Secondly, as they were in the, in the city, they would find the synagogue. And they would go there. Why would they go there? Two reasons. One is theological, Right, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Right, there's a theological basis there. Going into the synagogue where they can proclaim God's truth from the Old Testament to Jews who love the Old Testament, at least should love the Old Testament, who understand that, and making the connections to the fact that Jesus Christ is this Messiah. And then there's a practical, and that's there was freedom to speak in the synagogue. We're going to find that. Basically, you know, hey, if you have something to say, come and you can say. There was a lot of freedom within the context of the synagogue to stand up and to speak the truth of Christ. So a central city, a synagogue. What do you do then when you're in the synagogue? And just notice in this text, they proclaim the word. And we have these these statements just in in our text. They preach the word. They're teaching the word, verse 7. There is the faith mentioned, which is the body of doctrine in verse 8. The straight paths of the Lord. Again, God's instructions. The teaching of the Lord in verse 12. And friends, it's important that the, the, the strategy is to go into the synagogues and to proclaim the word of God. It's not to do all these other things that often people want to do as a substitute in missions. Then the next thing is to establish a church. And I put a little asterisk there, and that simply means, if possible, in other words, raising elders, and, 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 and that all takes time. Sometimes the apostles will run out of town. I mean, they come in, they proclaim the gospel in the synagogues. Some people believe, and before long, they're running down the center road of town, being chased by rocks. I mean, that's just what's happening. So if there's the possibility of staying and, build, and kind of establishing the church, and they do that, next would be to build up the church. Again, if possible, through training and through teaching. But what you find also in these missionary journeys is this circling back, this revisiting the church. In fact, look, if you would, at chapter 14 and verse 21. This is toward the end of our section now. And what's going to happen is we're going to see that, that the apostles here do circle back. Verse 21 of chapter 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, which is a city they've just come through, and to Iconium, which is a city they've come through, and to Antioch, which is a different Antioch. I know it's confusing than the one we've just, uh, we're, we're doing to, dealing with today. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So as they could, they would go out, they would establish the churches, they would build the churches up, and then if they could, they would circle back. And if that was... Not enough. They would, Paul, you know, other apostles would write letters to the churches to help encourage them and to give answers to questions that they have. Right? We will find this strategy repeated again and again and again in the storyline of Acts. 
So what we need to understand is there is a missionary commission. They're called to do something. There's a strategy that they're following, team strategy and a ministry strategy. Third, notice in this passage, we have a ministry confrontation. And I think this is helpful in the context of what's going on here because it's a reminder again that, you know, they're not just going to be here of God's servants and all of a sudden everything they touch turns to gold, right? That's just not how it works. There's going to be opportunity to encounter opposition. So beginning, uh, being a missionary isn't just about proclaiming the truth, it's also about defending the truth. So the apostles are called to both gospel proclamation and gospel protection. And notice the, the gospel seeker that shows up in our text, right? When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So Sergius Paulus, this proconsul, this Roman governor of the island, who's described here as one of intelligence, and the implication there is he was not sucked in by this magician, but he was open to hearing the gospel. And friends, as we step back and we think about the grand scheme of things, God was already at work preparing the heart of this Roman governor to hear and to receive the gospel. Even in the context of one we know to be a Jewish false prophet, God was already at work. And friends, it's a reminder that we must not shoot too low with the gospel. Oh, there's no way the governor of Crete is going to want to listen to this stuff. There's no way he'll give us even the time of day. Really? God's been working. In fact, Barnabas and Paul didn't have to kind of go and knock on his door. They're invited by him. Again, part of God's providence here. Often we're afraid of people in high places because we often find them entrenched in their political ideologies their secular worldviews and their religious convictions. And, and we're just, we're, oh, I, don't, there's no, I, don't, I don't think the gospel is going to be able to penetrate. They have convictions that are apathetic toward religion, saying, well, I don't need it. They're opposed to religion in general. They hate organized religion. Or they're entrenched in a particular religion. They're blinded by it. But this text, friends, is a reminder for us to pray for those unbelievers who are in authority over us, and not to be daunted or fearful uh, in our perception of what's going on in their hearts, but to believe that God is at work. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? Okay, you're deaf. But what's the worst thing really that could happen is that they reject the gospel. But you've been faithful. And obviously you're going to be wise in doing it. You're not going to be obnoxious in doing it. but, But don't fear them simply because they're in positions of authority over you. So we're talking here about professors and, and your, your bosses or managers or co-workers. Here's a gospel seeker. But this gospel seeker also has near him a gospel opposer. Right? Elemas. Here's, here's uh, how Luke describes him in four different ways. He's a magician. And in other words, he's a deceiver. He's one who can, can trick. There, there may be some realities of a darker world, but... He's someone that can, 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 uh, can create things to bring about deception. 
He's a Jewish false teacher. So he's, he's opposed to what is the truth of the Old Testament, not in the sense of the Pharisees who, who had created something, but he's deliberately counteracting what is happening in the, in the Old Testament. His name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Joshua or son of Jesus. And Luke here identifies him also as Elemas or wise, which Luke understands to mean a magician. He was a wise man, just like the wise men that went to see Jesus, right? That kind of a thing, right? The point is that when this magician and false teacher heard about the message that Paul and Barnabas were preaching in town, and the Roman governor wanted to hear them, he opposed them, the apostles, but he also sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So he's working in two different directions. I want to be opposing the apostles, and I want to stop the proconsul from listening. You have to wonder what is going on with him. He's probably simply fearful that the gospel message will expose his false teaching and leave him in a place to undo his position of influence with this Roman governor. Now, friends, there will always be gospel seekers. There will always be gospel opposers. Just the reality of what the world is like when it comes to a missionary endeavor. And then what we find here is that Saul, who we'll find out is Paul, becomes now this gospel protector. Now, notice, first of all, the the protector. His name is Saul, but he's also called Paul. A lot of people are confused about that. Is that simply because of his conversion. He was once Saul, he is now Paul. No, that's not what's going on here. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Latin name. And as ministry turns to the Gentiles, it's only natural then to begin calling him by the name that he would be known by as he goes around the Mediterranean with these Gentiles. But notice the rebuke. Notice the rebuke. And notice what we find here. Saul confronts Elymas with a harsh but righteous rebuke. This rebuke, I want you to notice, first of all, is spirit-controlled. It says, Paul, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. So this isn't Paul having a bad day. You know, he didn't get his in and out today, and so he's upset. That's not what's going on. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's controlled by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, this rebuke was serious. He looked intently at him. He's like, look, you need to listen to this, and what I'm going to say is important. It's also a severe rebuke. Paul doesn't kind of put his arm around and say, Elvis, come here, I want to chat with you about your theology and your opposition. How are you doing today? How's the family going today? Oh, yeah, what soccer team do you support? Oh, that's nice, that's really good. Let me just let's talk a little bit about your theology. No, 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 no. This is a severe rebuke. It was scathing. You are the devil, and you will be punished. Now, friends, this is where the tone police might rush in with their sirens on. Time out, Paul. Time out. Whoa, whoa, slow down, Paul. How how can you talk to him this way? Paul, your harshness, your tone is unacceptable. If you have to say some things, you need to be more like Christ. Be gentle, be loving. And lead Elymas to the truth. The problem with tone police, friends, is twofold. And likely there's more to say on this. They have a one-sided view of Jesus. They choose to ignore how he turned over tables and cracked the whip in the temple. 
Or that Jesus scathingly confronted the religious leaders. Listen to Matthew 23, verse 27, as Jesus confronts them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Have a good day. This is Jesus. Now, this isn't carte blanche to to have an attitude and be obnoxious and to say nasty things. That's not what's going on here at all. Secondly, they see, and this is probably even more important, they see the tone of the rebuke as being more sinful than the sin that is being addressed in the rebuke. And friends, this is happening in our culture today. You speak the truth. Oh, I can't believe you said that. I mean, your tone and your your confrontational, that's hateful. It's like, Will you listen to what's actually being said? And what this passage teaches us, friends, is that there are times when we simply interact with others by faithfully and compassionately proclaiming the truth of the gospel. But there are other times when we must boldly confront and expose our culture's false teachers and those who stand opposed to the gospel clearly for who they are and what they're doing. And now such confrontation cannot be our regular methodology. But there are times when it's necessary to call a spade a spade, to call out those who are standing opposed to the gospel, to call out their false teaching. I have no problem calling out Oprah Winfrey. Why? She has a public platform and she says things and it's out there. And when it's contrary to scripture and it's affecting people's lives, guess what? I'll bring it up. Why not? Because this is God's church. These are his people. And as a shepherd, not only to speak the truth, but we also have to protect the truth. This is one example. And friends, the world around us will point their fingers at Paul and at us and accuse us of a hateful tone. But it really isn't the tone at all. That is the smokescreen for their unwillingness to listen to the truth, right? It's just, it's just a way to say, I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to listen to you, your tone. You need to change your tone. All right, so I change my tone, and they still won't listen to me. That's what happens. So having said all that, Paul rebukes, and it's a scathing rebuke. And there's three parts to his rebuke. Number one, you son of the devil, which is ironic because his name is what? Son of Jesus. He's a man who bears the nature of his father, full of trickery and deceit. Secondly, you enemy of righteousness. As the son of the devil, he's opposed to the ways of God, to the mission of Christ, to the spread of the gospel. He's guilty of making God's straight paths crooked, twisting God's word. When God is clear, he's making it unclear. Third, the hand of the Lord is upon you. He says, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. This is the hand of the Lord in judgment against Elymas. The false prophet here is confronted by Paul, the truth prophet, and immediately, notice, immediately after Paul speaks, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
Must have been a pretty powerful demonstration of God and his authority. This was audible, it was visible, and for Elymas, it was experiential. And this temporary punishment exposed him as that fraud and false prophet, as well as authenticating the message that Paul and Barnabas were coming and preaching. And his punishment was also symbolic. He was walking around blind, needing others to lead him. You can't stand opposed to God and his gospel and get away with it. Now, it's a powerful confrontation, isn't it? It's a powerful rebuke. Then we have number four here, a missionary conversion. There's a conversion that takes place here. Then, then, put a little circle around that, then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, the goal of any mission's endeavor is for God to be glorified by those whom he is drawing to himself, ultimately coming to the faith through the preaching of his word. And Sergius Paulus believes because of what he saw, yes, not the experience so much as he saw the authority and the power of God on display, which authenticated then what he heard. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the reinforcement of the message of the gospel. And friends, this is a micro example of the macro truth that we find in Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. God in his own providence is working in the heart of Sergius Paulus. He takes these trained, equipped, chosen, sent out men to do ministry according to a team and and ministry strategy, confront those that are opposed, in particular Elymas here. And as a result, Sergius Paulus is converted. And friends, we should not be surprised at the kinds of people God chooses to save. Persecutors of the faith, like Paul. Rich businessmen, like Barnabas. Wealthy women, Mary, we read last week. Lame beggars, struggling fishermen, tax collectors, Roman governors. Then the list goes on. So don't underestimate the life-changing power of the gospel. Now, friends, having looked at all that, I just want to finish up with three concluding thoughts. There's so much to, to discuss in here, just kind of as far as strategy, as far as the church is concerned, but three things that I think settled on my heart that I was asking myself. Number one, do we still believe in the gospel? Or has it been replaced by lesser things, even good things? Or has it been eclipsed by the ideologies of the world? I mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones a little bit earlier, that in his 20s, he ascended to a prominent place in the British medical community as a brilliant physician. And he had the privilege to treat many of the, the wealthy, the upper class in London. In particular, he was one of the guys that was being looked at to be the physician to the royal family. I mean, this is where he was in his world in his 20s. But God had been working on his heart to be a proclaimer of his word. And he was struck with the thought that he was helping 
unconverted people become well so that they could return to a life of sin. And here's what he said. We spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. I want to heal souls. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is all right, he is all right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and a distressed soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face eternity in hell. And so Lloyd-Jones stepped away from his prestigious role as a doctor and took up this call to preach. There's a perspective there. I'm not saying if you're a nurse or a doctor that you should abandon what you're doing. I'm just saying there's, there's a perspective there that we need to understand. What is it that we're doing here? The world needs doctors and nurses and mechanics and bakers and accountants and so on. But Lloyd-Jones was wrestling with God's call on his life. He saw that the gospel was man's greatest need and that preaching was the God-given means of proclaiming that gospel. Sadly... In today's context, many preachers are following the winds of culture and leading their churches to become social justice warriors who are now replacing the greatest need, the gospel, with this new social gospel and kind of teaching in different ways and sometimes subtle ways that that man's greatest need is to overthrow his oppressors or that man's driving goal is for equity and equality and reparations. And certainly there's some aspects in there that we would say yes but there's some things that we would say definitely no, and that the word of God is being twisted to fit this new narrative and this new agenda. Friends, just think through me. Uh, Think through this with me. What if your oppressors are overthrown? And what if the utopian equity and equality and reparations for all is achieved? You still have to stand before God. You still are accountable for your sin. Friends, it's the greatest need. And the church needs to remember that it is the greatest need. Secondly, we still believe in the gospel. Secondly, are we still committed to the Great Commission? To spread the gospel to the end of the earth. I mean, I have been in a context talking to a pastor who says, I can't do missions. And I ask, well, why? He says, my elders say, we need to do the work here, not on the mission field. Element of truth. But you don't abandon one for the other. In fact, the other, the mission field, is the, the means by which you're, you're using what's happening locally so that you can take things globally. And you don't have to take on the whole world. You just take on a few parts, Right? Is mission still a worthy endeavor in our crazy, mixed-up world? Or is missions a lost cause? Do we find ourselves saying things like, it's too dangerous, there's too much opposition, missions just doesn't work anymore, you might catch COVID? As if none of these challenges were ever on the table as the church expanded through the ages. Dangerous? Yes, it will always be dangerous. Ergo, Paul, you are my apostle to the Gentiles, but you will suffer. Well, if I'm going to suffer, I'm not going to go. No, you go. Just you go and you're going to suffer and you're going to bring glory to my name. Opposition? Yes, there'll always be opposition. This world hates you 
and persecutes you because Jesus says it hated me first. Can't get away from that. Pragmatism. Well, who's defining what works? What do you mean by what works? Well, it's not working. Well, maybe God is at work in ways that you don't understand. Disease. You think that missions to the earth or to the end of the earth was ever hindered by disease as if missionaries never had to endure things like tuberculosis and cholera and malaria and dysentery and the plague? And it's say, oh, come home now. There's a new disease out there. Stop what you're doing. No, the church has always been present to continue the ministry of the gospel in spite of all these things that happen on a regular basis. Friends, Christ's mission and strategy has not changed. The goal is always to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, strategies might be different. In other words, people might go into countries that are difficult to get in. They go in as businessmen. But the the end goal is to be able to share the gospel. That's the focus. Some are called to go. Many are called to send. Others are simply living in disobedience, caught up with the winds of the world. And the question I have for you, and I want you to evaluate it on a personal level, where do you fit? Can you honestly say that you're being faithful to do your part in the missionary spread of the gospel? Some of you, God is stirring up to go. Probably the bulk of you, God is stirring up to be senders, and that's okay. But don't find yourself in the disobedient category. Find out where you're supposed to be and do it for the glory of God. Here's my final question. And this is a question I wrestle with. Are we doing a good job in equipping the saints for the ministry? See, Antioch was an equipping and training church. Not all the people went off to, uh, on the missionary journeys, but we can assume that they were growing and maturing and using their gifts to minister in the context of the church as well as in their uh, context of their local communities. So friends, are you growing in your theology? Are you pursuing becoming more and more like Christ? Are you placing yourself into the equipping opportunities that are given to you? Are you taking advantage of small groups, and workshops, one-on-one interactions with the elders and other people in the church so that you are nurturing your growth? Friends, the Antioch Church is a good model for Gateway to pursue training where men and women use their gifts for ministry identifying where men and women who are qualified for leadership roles in the church as well as outside the church are identified by the church, sending individuals, couples, and families to labor on the mission field, supporting through the financial help, relational support, theological training, and so on. Are you committed to the strategic missional advance of the gospel to the end of the earth? See, this is not just church corporate elders. This is the church made up of individuals. Are you committed to that? We might be committed as leaders, but are you committed to that? And what is God, what is God tapping on you about, even as that question goes out this morning? Lord, help us today. Help us to to wrap our hands around all these different things that we're picking up, Lord, from this text about what it means to be a church that is strategic, that's missional, and is advancing the spread of the gospel to the end of the earth. 
Well, we've had the joy in our short existence of having a number of people come through and go to the mission field. But Lord, you're not done. You're still at work and our church can still be used in small ways and in greater ways. Lord, teach us where maybe we have grown soft with the gospel. Teach us, Lord, maybe ways that we have grown soft in our understanding of the Great Commission. And Lord, teach us ways in which we need to do a better job, not only of having the right kind of equipping tools, but being willing to sit under the kind of equipping that needs to take place so that we can live our lives for your glory. Lord, allow Gateway to be humble and honest and Lord, to adjust its, its perspectives, Lord, based on what you're teaching us through your word. Lord, help us to have this Antioch initiative. Lord, to want to be, yes, a small church, but a church that can be its own hub for your glory. Having an impact, Lord, where you've placed us. Whether that be here in San Lorenzo, or whether that be in Ukraine or Bolivia, or Lord, wherever that connection might be that you're creating, that you're establishing. Help us, Lord, to be humble and honest and to evaluate where we are in all of this. For your glory, we ask in your name. Amen.